Hello and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and, you know, as always, you can hit us up on social media. You can find us at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. Hey, we're there for you. Also, you can email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, be sure to hit us up. You can find me on Twitter, Austin Glidden. You'll find me. I'm there. Uh, also, uh, be sure to subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you're listening now. We would really appreciate that. And you can also be notified whenever uh, you know we have new content coming out. As you guys know, sometimes we put bonus content out and so on. It'd be great. Just to keep, keep up with us. We'd love to be a part of your lives and hopefully... Uh, you know, you will be a part of ours. So anyways, uh, you know, hit us up, let us know what's up. Today's episode, we're going to be celebrating Barry Levinson's birthday. Barry Levinson is a pretty popular filmmaker. He had a lot of bangers in the 80s, and he's done, um, you know, peppered throughout his long career to this day. You know, he's uh, he's had some other hits along the way. He's really awesome, though. He did some really cool movies. Definitely check him out. If you haven't seen The Natural, Diner, uh, Rain Man, Wag the Dog, You Don't Know Jack. I mean, I could just start listing Liberty Heights, um, which I actually haven't seen Liberty Heights, uh, but I always hear a lot of good about it. He's done tons of great stuff. Today, we're actually covering... One of uh, his earlier films, and it was really, I would call it Robin Williams' real feature film breakout. I mean, he did he did Popeye in 1980 with Robert Altman, but this was like a huge success and more of a personality comedy getting that Robin Williams persona over, that kind of spazzy uh, observation humor that he does. And so anyways, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Joe and I, that is, are going to be talking about uh, Good Morning Vietnam from 1987, and that's going to be our long-form conversation. But today, I'm going to actually start, before we get there, with my thoughts on Godzilla vs. Kong, the new blockbuster uh, that was released, uh, I think it was last Wednesday, I want to say, um, so almost a week, just about a week ago, and uh, you know, it was released that day. Uh, on HBO Max and in theaters. I was able to see it on HBO Max. And hey, here are some of my thoughts on the movie. This is our only chance. We have to take it. We need Kong. The world needs him to stop what's coming. And this child, she's the only one he'll communicate with. I knew that they had a bond. She had nowhere to go, so I made a promise to protect her. And I think that in some way, Kong did the same. Godzilla. 
people, and we don't know why. There's something provoking him that we're not seeing here. I'm of the same opinion. The myths are real. Yeah. There was a war. And they're the last ones standing. I keep reaching for greatness because I'm built from it. Who bows to who? Nobody gonna stop for me. Kong bows to no one. All right, folks. Godzilla vs. Kong. What an intense trailer. Uh, I'm just going to tell you this up front, straight up, that uh, th this will likely turn into a bit more of a rant than a review. So I hesitate in even saying, like, hey, here's my review for Godzilla vs. Kong. Um, now, also, please understand that that doesn't mean that I absolutely hate or absolutely love this movie. I just have a feeling I'm going to be ranting a bit about this. But anyways... Godzilla vs. Kong is a tentpole blockbuster that was given a hybrid release, both in theaters and virtually on HBO Max, where you can go watch it now. And it's directed by Adam Wingard and stars some iconic giants, or titans, if you will, Godzilla and King Kong, as the name promotes. Now, now the giant monsters, you know, walk the earth, there are powerful people who fear the worst. And this film is focused on what happens when one powerful person uses that fear for personal gain. We see Kong early on in a Truman Show scenario, stuck inside a man-made Skull Island clone facility. Kong is growing progressively more impatient with, with his surroundings, uh, but the scientist watching over him, Eileen Andrews, played by the great Rebecca Hall, fears that Godzilla will come to kill Kong if he is set free. Now, why would Godzilla try to kill Kong, seeing as how the last Godzilla movie, Godzilla, King of the Monsters from 2019, ended with him being our all-powerful and, you know, relatively peaceful hero? Well, honestly, I have no idea why he wants to kill Kong. Uh, that was, that seemed very convoluted, but we'll get there. Uh, but I have no idea. But it, it, it has something to do with the aforementioned powerful man, Walter Simmons, played by Damian Bashir. Uh, and he's the head of Apex Cybernetics. Now, he and his company have been creating a mech creature that can match Godzilla's power and defeat him once and for all. But he lacks the power. And as in he, you know, literally lacks the energy to power the mech. So they have to find out if the hollow earth theory is true. The concept proposing that the earth is entirely hollow or contains a substantial interior space. Or in the case of the movie, does it possess titans like Kong and other giant unidentifiable creatures? But the goal for Apex Cybernetics is to find a power source in this land that can fuel this mech that they've created. Now, Godzilla vs. Kong sets off down a series of paths leading to notable confrontations between these titans. But before I get into that, allow me to start with some quotes from positive reviews. Now, I'm not going to talk about where they come from or anything. Uh, these are pretty easy to find. Honestly, I just looked on Rotten Tomatoes and found a few, a few bangers here. Here's one. The story itself can fluctuate from boring to absurd... But the film is heavy on the action, with Godzilla and Kong putting on a dazzling display of strength. Another. Big, dumb, city-destroying fun. Another. 
Forgive the exposition dump in the convoluted plot and go for the Clash of the Titans that is spectacular in every sense of the word. Next, it's big, dumb fun that should be seen on the biggest screen you feel comfortable with. Another, for a movie made by a special effects team, this one isn't half bad. Next, for maximum enjoyment, try to channel your inner seven-year-old and just go along for the goofy ride. And finally, an action movie not to be taken too seriously. These are positive reviews, guys. What are we doing here? You know, I feel like this is where the rant's going to begin because I don't hate this movie. Understand this. Before I get into all this, I don't hate it. You know, I'm pretty indifferent about it, to be honest. I don't hate the movie, though, so I'll get that out of the way right now. But don't let that be mistaken for me thinking it's good because it's just not a good film. All right. Now, if you if you enjoy the movie, that's fine. That means whatever spectacle and senseless mind numbing shit is going on in the movie, it appeals to you. And there are parts of it that appeal to me, too. And I'll touch on a few of those things here momentarily. Um, But uh, it's just not good. Uh, so the writing is a convoluted, boring mess focused on, you know, what have now become cliches and it relies far too heavily on the suspension of disbelief and the idea that the audience will just quote, go with it. Okay. We have been brought down as moviegoers over the years to a point where, you know, we, we have to imagine ourselves as children to enjoy something not targeted at children because it is, you know, PG 13, But whatever. I agree that it is a tolerable mess. I agree with that. And at times it can be fun if you just shut your brain off. But it's no better than watching an action short on YouTube. Because the rest of the plot and everything else beyond these spectacle moments, there's just not much there for you to to dig into, to, to even enjoy. So, so you might as well just watch the scenes of the CG giant battling it out, you know? Uh, I don't know. So I was actually a decent fan of Gareth Edwards' directed uh, Godzilla from 2014 because despite some seriously bad performances by some and the poor writing, Godzilla was treated like a wild beast fighting off threats for the greater good, but only coincidentally is Godzilla the hero. It's a wild creature void of human emotion. It just is. So for me, the problem with all of the, the later films is the writers try way too hard to humanize the hero titans, which we see to a, a much greater degree in this film. It's fucking stupid to me, okay? <laughs> Though I actually find myself cheering for Kong in Godzilla vs. Kong, please don't mistake that for me supporting the methods used to get me there. I'm a sucker for apes, I guess. I don't know. But it will never hold a candle to the Planet of the Apes reboots, like Rise, Dawn, and War. Uh, Nor is it trying to. I'm not trying to make that comparison, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, Godzilla vs. Kong does employ certain aspects that do remind me of those films, the Planet of the Apes reboots. Uh, Most notably, one specific thing. For uh, a... Deaf orphan, Gia, who's played wonderfully by an actual deaf child actor, Kaylee Hoddle, uh, possibly one of the best parts to film in my eyes, probably because she doesn't have to speak most of the other dreadful dialogue, but I digress. 
somehow she teaches Kong how to understand and speak with sign language without anyone else knowing. None of the scientists that are constantly keeping surveillance, none of these things. No one else knows about this, okay? This is stupid. <laughs> you know when, you know, you know when it wasn't stupid? <laughs> you know when it wasn't stupid? Uh, it was done a billion times better in the fucking Planet of the Apes reboots, okay? But I digress again. When Kong speaks in sign language, it humanizes him, okay? It allows him to communicate and use universal nonverbal communication to come across as a more, uh, as more of a character. And in theory, I understand how this could work. I really, really do. It makes sense because like Disney, like every single animal that talks in Disney, they add human emotions to it so that we can connect and relate to it. I, I understand all of the things. In this film, however, it feels forced to me. And it has in all of the others, but this one, it really hammers down this humanizing factor, okay? Let them be wild creatures. Why can't they just be wild? I don't know. That That's what they are. So just let them be the thing. Anyways, so a lot of people don't like the humans in the movie. And I totally agree. Despite liking Alexander Skarsgård, Millie Bobby Brown, Rebecca Hall, and Damien Bashar as actors, or Bashir, uh, as actors, I like them in other movies. I think they're good performers. Uh, you know, they're all mostly underwhelming here. And, 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 uh, the best human by far is the actress that plays Gia, the deaf actress. Awesome. She's great. Uh, so, you know, I personally think the best way to go about films like this is to follow, you know, the original Godzilla formula, to be honest. Let the humans supply the heart. And, and, and a simple story to set the foundation for the wild, untamable titans to rock the dance floor. Come on. Unfortunately, the Motley crew of writers don't understand how to pull this off, so it makes the audience just wish they could see more and more Titan brawls. But that's not the answer to this problem. These movies need a coherent, simple story. It does not have to be wild. Characters that are not annoying is a great place to start. Titans that can kick other Titans' asses is a great place to start. Uh, I just don't understand why it's so hard because a lot of these writers, granted, you know, I'm sure th there's a, a studio thumb being pressed down on them, but these these writers are professionals. This is what they do, and this is what they get paid for. If you if you give me you know a few weeks and and you need f like uh, uh, like a beat sheet for like five different movies with overlapping stories, that's not hard for me to do. Now, writing the script is difficult. I, I, I don't envy screenwriters. It can be a very hard process. I totally get it. And, and I don't mean to, to uh, belittle uh, that profession because it's hard. But man, this is just, the writing in this movie is horrible. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. There you go. So it's bad largely due to the incoherence and idiotic nature of, of the plot here. But, you know, though that's true, remember when I said I don't completely hate this movie? Well, the battles can be really fun, okay? Though not always, uh, most of the time they are. And and this also is, is uh, you know, elevated through how colorful 
and 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 beautiful the lighting and stuff is the the effects team deserve a trophy here okay uh for essentially making this film possible because the colorful lighting is really what drew my eyes throughout throughout the whole film and uh, i mean and it's not just during like the the battle moments i mean the, the film looks really cool throughout most of it except for one thing i'm going to say this real quick there's i mentioned the hollow earth theory right uh i don't consider this a spoiler you know, uh, they 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 get to the Hollow Earth, okay. And I, I'm not going to tell you how. I'm not going to tell you any of the details there. The one thing I will say is this: all right, this is some Inception-looking shit. All right, uh, where there's land above and below, and and uh, gravity's weird. You know, it's it's like kind of a weird land. Uh, again, I'm trying to be very vague because you can go watch this right now and and check it out yourself. How, so if this is in the middle of the Earth, how is there a sun? It's like details like this, you know, like there's like this beautiful sun, like shooting in a star. Is it a core of some sort? I don't understand, but just it just practically makes no sense. If it's in the center of the earth, how is there a light source uh, that's like a star? Anyways, I digress again. So, uh, you know, uh, back to some things I actually do like, though. (laughs) Uh, the, the colorful lighting, um, and everything is, is really beautiful. Uh, and, and, uh, there's a fight between Godzilla and Kong that takes place in Hong Kong. And I actually, here go, here I digress again. Uh, I actually find it really disturbing because though the local government's trying to evacuate the city because they know some shit's about to go down, there are clearly still, you know, a great majority of civilians there and they certainly are all dead now. <laughs> Because this is a wild fight, man. The fight between these two titans is beautiful. But the the splashes of neon light and reflections of those bright colors is just really cool. I was definitely distracted by the inevitable death toll happening beneath the titans' feet. Uh, But still, it was cool to watch nonetheless. Um, again, it's back to, uh, if you can shut your brain off, you know, and just go, duh, I like colors. If you can do that thing, then, you know, it, it, it works. And, and to some extent it worked for me, but the whole time I watched this by myself once and I watched it a second time with my wife, uh, just to kind of have a, a, a firm understanding of what I just watched so I could do this bit here, like this, this piece and, segment would probably be a better word uh to do this segment and and uh i just kept getting so distracted by like well there's more dead people because you see people running away from this battle i'm sorry i'm st- I'm trying to talk about things i like about it and i keep going on these like random tangents about what i don't like the colors are beautiful the lighting is beautiful and and the cg i'm i'm a critic of cg like a neg- like I think it's way too overused, and it is overused in this film, and at times it doesn't really work, but a lot of it actually does work pretty well. Again, I get annoyed by Kong being humanized so much, but it is done really well. I just don't agree with that direction, right? But it is done very well. Uh, the, the spectacle of this can be very entertaining. So moving on real quick. We don't have enough time for this shit. The Apex Cybernetics mech is... Mecha Godzilla, a throwback to the 1974 debut of the same character, and uh, I, I I pretty much hate everything about this. <laughs> uh, if you needed a downer for the day, here I am because it's all just a plot device, man. This film, due in large part to the writing, 
waste so much time on nonsense during the two-hour running time. I mean, uh, was Mechagodzilla really necessary in a film with two other titans that are far more important? Excuse me. I just burped. Anyways, I think Mechagodzilla could be cool. But you have to develop something. All right? This is uh, like many blockbuster villains. It's a rush job creating a means to an end. And it's disappointing. Uh, That part, boring. Uh, Again, Godzilla and Kong being on the same screen is honestly really cool and fun to watch. Uh, But uh, yeah, the Mechagodzilla thing was a waste. So, you know, I really don't know what to tell you about this movie because I'm running longer than I wanted to, and I'm just I'm just bitching about it. Again, there are things to like here, um, but there isn't much to admire here other than, again, actor Kaylee Hoddle, who made everyone better in the scene she was in. Uh, and, you know, man, I think part of the reason why Hoddle makes everyone better is because, again, she doesn't talk. So you don't have to deal with shitty dialogue. They just do sign language, and it works great. Do more of that. Anyways. Um, But also, again, uh, the spectacle of it, the beautiful lighting, and and the colors used. I mean, it it is really a nice movie to look at. Um, I keep thinking of things I want to bitch about. I'm trying to move forward. I'm going to tell you this, too. Kong has an axe. What the fuck? It's stupid. Why does he have an axe? Anyways. I can't wait for people... Again, remember, this isn't much of a review, to be honest. I mean, this is really just me kind of going off. All right, anyways, uh, if you are able and willing to shut your brain off and allow it to turn to mush here, this can honestly be an acceptable experience with some actual fun at times. I watched it twice. I don't regret watching it twice. I didn't hate the experience, but I was distracted by how incompetent a lot of this writing is. Wow, especially when you have such great, uh, such a great cast. Rebecca Hall is awesome. Alexander Skarsgård is awesome. Why are we wasting them with this shit? But anyways, um, so if you can do that, please check this out. Um, I'm not recommending this, but I'm saying a lot of people are watching it. If you want in on, on this and to have your own opinion, by all means, go check it out. I don't think it's a waste of time. You know, if you just need to put something on, this is a fun thing to kind of look up and go, ooh, the colors, wow, that looks cool, and move on. Uh, mute it, too, because it lo- it just people talking is annoying. However, if you're like me and find experiences that demand zero brainwaves as, you know, if you consider them overrated and dull, then this will likely underwhelm you to the point of regret. So you can skip this one on that level. Um, like I said, it, it does bring a little bit of fun Uh, at times, but it just doesn't warrant you having to sit through the two-hour waiting time. I gave the film a two and a half, or sorry, whoa, a two out of five. That is a negative review. Uh, You can uh, check this out on HBO Max, or if you feel safe enough, you may see it in the theaters. I watched it on HBO. If you see it and agree or disagree with my take, please hit me up on our social media. You can find me uh, at Austin Glidden on Twitter. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. Let me know, uh, you know, all of your thoughts on the film because I would love to hear from you. But now, finally, we're going to change gears. We're going to hop over and see what Joe's up to when we celebrate Barry Levinson's birthday by talking about the 1987 classic, Good Morning Vietnam. 
I want to start, if you don't mind, and uh -huh. if you do mind, I'll just edit this out. <laughs> Uh, but, um, you know, I, I got on Facebook today, Joe, and, uh, -huh. uh and I saw, uh, a ton of posts, including yours, mm -hmm. kind of, uh, in memoriam of, uh, a, a fellow film critic that has recently passed on. Yes. Um, yes. would, would you, you bring that up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to, you know, I, I, I didn't know, uh, EJO, I don't know the man's name, but, um, <laughs> I just remember that, uh, that our friend Matt Sosi was, uh, he called him EJO, but I, I didn't have the privilege of knowing this gentleman, but huh? all of my film critic friends did. And I wanted to give just a, a little space mm -hmm. to kind of just uh, celebrate this human. And if you would yeah. tell us a story and tell us a little bit about who he was. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, the, the man's name is Ed Johnson Ott. Um, he is, um, he's been a critic. He was a critic at Nouveau News Weekly, which is, if you don't live in Indianapolis in the Indianapolis area, it's our alternative weekly newspaper. It, it doesn't exist anymore um, in the physical form. It's a, I believe it's an online publication now. But for years and years, it was a kind of a stalwart in the community. And it was one of those, you know, it was one of the, it's, you know, maybe not, it became bigger than underground. When it first started, it was sort of an underground news publication. And he had been the critic there for at least the main critic for, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years or more, maybe. Um, I, I met him, you know, I read his work uh, before I knew him. And then I met him sometime after I started doing this in 2004. And he was just the nicest guy, just the absolute kindest. He had the warmest smile. He was, he was kind of your, you know, your, your favorite uncle is who Ed always <laughs> yeah. reminded me of, you know. Um, just, just warm and kind. And he's also, you know, also principled. And, um, you know, the, the story I shared on Facebook is kind of my quintessential Ed story. Um, and, and that's a, um, that hopefully we'll be doing again in the near future. Um, but these places are full of people, crammed full of people and they bring, um, you know, they, they bring like local radio personalities to come in and they do, you know, they do a, a shtick and they, you know, the, and of course the movie station or the um, radio stations and TV stations are giving away this, the movie passes. So they host these screenings. And um, sometimes they do like prize giveaways or they'll give away movie swag, you know, t-shirts and hats or whatever the, you know, they've happened to make. Um, and there was this particular guy who was a radio personality for um, one of the the bigger, more high profile stations in Indianapolis, and you know, and obviously I'm not going to share his name. Um, I'm, I'm actually Facebook friends with the guy, I think, so um, it'd be fun if he actually chimed in on it. But um, but I don't know if he will or not. But but anyway, um, so anyway, this this guy was was doing his spiel, and and he was you know, and, and these are looser than you know, they're looser and a little more intimate than a than a big public event. But he he let slip the phrase that's so gay, you know, in a, you know, in a, yeah. in a context that has nothing to do with homosexuality, you know, and, you know, and so that Ed and Ed was, was a gay man. And I knew as soon as he said that I wasn't sitting next to Ed, I was sitting maybe two rows behind him at the time, but I knew like that was going to bug him, but I didn't know what he was going to do. And what he did was, and now um, Ed also was in a wheelchair at that time. Um, he, um, he actually suffered from Parkinson's. So the last 
I don't know, seven, eight, 10 years, he's, um, he's kind of, you know, he's been struggling with, with those health problems, but he's been in a wheelchair as long as I've known him, which is, you know, 15 years, I think now, um, at least assisted by a wheelchair, if not, you know, if not, you know, using it all the time. Um, but he, um, he went right over to him and he, you know, and, and again, keep in mind, he's in the middle of a room of, you know, I don't know, 200 people and who he is talking to with a, you know, using a, a microphone and he walks up to him and he's like, and I can, and I can hear him. I'm close enough to hear him. And I'm, I said, I, and I see him and I'm watching him the whole time as he goes up to him and he's, he's just like, he was, he was, uh, you know, I, I get that you are, you know, playing the crowd, but that's really offensive when you say that. And He's like, you should really drop that phrase and not use it anymore because it's it's really offensive. And really, you're better than that. And and this guy who I believe knew, he knew Ed, if not wasn't, you know, if he wasn't good friends with him, he knew him from different events and stuff. Sure. And he just, and like his face just kind of dropped and he was like, Yeah, you're right. And he and he's like, he's like, look, I'm I apologize. I'm really sorry about that. And, and then he, and I think he apologized to everyone. He's like, look, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, everybody. I apologize to everybody. And, and Ed just, you know, and he just went back and I was just like, man, it could have been, he could have either not said anything or he could have been angry about it, but instead he used it as like this moment to really explain it to him. But also he didn't give a shit that it was in the middle of 200 people or more. (laughs) He was like, he was like, look, I'm going to say this. And, and you're going to hear it, but it was, it was done in, in a, in a kind way. And, it, and I just like, like it gave me goosebumps at, at the time when he did it. Cause I was like, what's going to happen? Is this guy going to get, cause this guy was a well-known radio personality. And I was like, is he going to get pissed off? Is he going to, you know, but no, he, he backed way off and um, apologized right there on the spot. And I was like, that's really cool. Um so yeah, um, he, yeah. So Ed, um, you know, like I said, Ed's been struggling with um, with these health problems for for several years now. Um, he's a founding member with with me and um, a group of, I believe, six or seven um, other people uh, being founding members of the Indiana Film Journalists Association. You know, which is our, of course, our critics group, as we've we've discussed on here many times. Um. So yeah, so he is. Um, he was an integral member. He was one of those guys that when I'm coming to a, you know, when I'm going to a screening and I'm looking for people, you know, we've talked about some of our other friends, you know, people who I want to sit next to, to just kind of shoot the shit with before the screening starts. You know, of course we've talked about some of our friends, Nick Rogers and, and Sam Watermeyer, Evan Dossie, and you know, other people that I kind of target. Ed was one of those people when he was going to the, the screening. So I was just like, I want to sit in the, I just, I want to sit near Ed and, and hear what he says, if not talk to him. And yeah, he, he was a great guy. He'll be missed. Um, he has a son um, who is uh, grown um, and he, he's, I believe he's special needs. And so, you know, I think he, I think he lives in a, in a facility himself, but um, I know he really valued spending time with him and loved him a lot. And um, so I'm sure that's a, it's a tough day for him. So, you know, thoughts of, of course, to him as well. Uh, but yeah, it, it was, it's a, it's a sad day. It's, it's not totally unsurprising, um, but it's a uh, yeah. It's it's still sad given who he is and what he's meant to the community in Indianapolis and in the state as a whole. Sure. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad that we had a moment uh, to kind of, like I said, you know, uh, I don't know what word to use, pay homage maybe, <laughs> which isn't really yeah. accurate, I don't think, but, you know, just yeah. to kind of give a moment uh, to to him. And, and it's a shame that I didn't get a chance to meet him, but I'm glad that he touched so many people's lives. So, um, you know, e- Edward... You will be Ed, missed. Edward Johnson. Yep. Ed, yep. Ed Johnson. Absolutely. will be missed. Um, all right. So we're going to go ahead and do just a sharp turn the other direction. <laughs> and we're going to hop into uh, our, our long form movie chat here. Now, Joe, I'm going to start this off before I even get to the movie. I'm going to mm-hmm. start this off. I don't think you know this about me. <laughs> but uh, today is Barry Levinson's birthday. Okay, the day that this drops, and uh, so you know we 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 threw up the we didn't throw up, but we put a poll up <laughs> on social media and asked listeners to choose between Rain Man, Good Morning Vietnam, and The Natural, uh, which are all Barry Levinson movies, uh, and. It was really neck and neck. They all got votes, but it was really neck and neck between Rain Man and Good Morning Vietnam. Good Morning Vietnam barely, I mean, I'm talking like by like a vote or something, <laughs> like barely, <laughs> barely like eked its way past. And I was really hyped about this for this reason. When I was in uh, grad, or no, 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 when I, was, when I was in undergrad, I think it was 2010, uh, I was in a film class. I want to say it was film theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, we watched The Natural, and I knew that was from Barry Levinson. I want to say it had to do with like maybe formalist film, or I don't remember. It was, it was. I'd have to think about it and look at my notes and stuff. But, anyways, we watched The Natural, and I remember like being a big fan. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was like a pretty. It felt kind of like an epic tale of sorts, even though it's really not. But you know, it's like it spans, and there's like weird mystical lightning and shit. You know, like it's cool. Right. And yeah. then, um, and so I, I knew that was Barry Levinson. I knew I'd seen Rain Man before. Uh, mm-hmm. I went back and I watched Diner. I rewatched uh-huh. Rain Man just to see if I had any updated feelings on that. I watched You Don't Know Jack, which came out that year, which is the only reason I remember it was that year. Yeah. Uh, loved all of them. The next movie on my list was Good Morning Vietnam, but something took my attention away. I had never seen Good Morning Vietnam beyond clips of him in the radio booth until yesterday. Yeah. Wow. Never seen it, if you can believe it. So this was a, a wonderful blind spot. Actually, when I was doing the film spotting, or the film spotting, oh my God, the uh, <laughs> the film yap blind spots huh? column that I had, the cinema blind spots, this was yeah. one of the movies on it that I wanted to tackle and never got to. So this yeah. has been on my radar, of course, for as long as I've liked movies, but even beyond that, like this has been kind of on my short lists of things to get caught up with that I just never like. There were always priorities that I ended up working above it, and so right. this was a really fun experience. So all of that said, this is coming from fresh eyes on my side. I'm assuming Excellent. you have seen this multiple mm-hmm. times, and not only that, you probably did. You see it in theaters? I did not see it in theaters, um, but I saw it. I saw it on, I would have seen it on home video and I have, it is a movie I've seen a number of times, but the weird thing is in watching it last night, um, I, so I, I rewatched it with my son, my oldest son for the first time last night. So I showed it to him for the first time. And um, it was strange to me that I, I kind of realized that I didn't remember how the movie ended. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, 
and, and I, I was actually, I actually pulled up, just pulled up Wikipedia and read the plot synopsis. And I was like, wait a minute, all that stuff happened? And so as many times as I've seen it, I had been focused on Robin Williams' performance in the radio booth and didn't pay as much attention to the, the things around it. Yeah. And so I, I did get a little bit extra this time. This is one of those, I missed something big. I mean, I, I mean, I remember some of the lines from the, from the end of the movie, one particular one that we may or may, I don't know, we may or may not discuss, but um, I definitely remember that line, but um, I didn't remember the, some of the circumstances around it. So um, yeah, so it, it was, it was fun to watch it. I and mean, like I said, as many times as I've watched it, I, I think I just at some point stopped. I was like, oh, this is where all the stuff happens after the radio stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's like so people like, with yeah, Full Metal Jacket where they stop after boot camp because all they right. want to see is yeah. like Arlie Ermey yell at people. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, yeah, it's like that's two different movies. And I mean, Good Morning Vietnam is not, but that, you know, that that transition away from him, you know, his antics in the in the in the studio definitely change the complexion of the movie so yeah so i i think maybe to an extent i kind of stopped with some of it so so yeah um yeah i've seen it many many a time um but i was i was pleased last night watching it again i was like okay things that i i had forgotten because i haven't seen it in several years so yeah. yeah well it's it's yeah it's it's interesting coming to it for the first time especially in the 21st century um mm-hmm. very interesting yes. film uh, so Good Morning Vietnam is a Barry Levinson film from 1987 starring the late, great Robin Williams and co-stars Forrest Whitaker, J.T. Walsh, Bruno Kirby, Robert Wool, and Noble Willingham. Uh, the film uh, was released December 23rd, 1987, limited release, but it actually came out January 15th, 1988 wide. So it was one of those trying to squeak into the Oscars the year before, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, budget of $13 million. Box office of $124 million. That is classified as a smash hit, my friends. A home run. Just Babe Ruth that shit and call it in the air, man. Um, anyway, so... Uh, that one over. Say again? <laughs> I said the whammer hit that one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty wild how successful this was. Again, we're used to movies now making... 124 million dollars but in the 80s i like i would love to look up movies like raiders of the lost ark and stuff which i know were smash hits also but it's like this feels like one of those (laughs) even though the movies are very different i'd have to look up numbers and stuff i'm sure it didn't make quite as much as something like indiana jones or something but um i mean this was this was big numbers so anyways uh, you know, Williams, Robin Williams plays Adrian Cronauer, a radio funny man sent to Vietnam to bring a little comedy back into the lives of the soldiers. And it's the hip kids versus the squares as Cronauer shocks his superiors who repeatedly try to get him taken off the air. But Cronauer also becomes the one thing the soldiers look forward to while in the bowels of war. Cronauer befriends a local uh, named Tuan uh, after chasing his sister, desperate to take her out. This Infatuation with the sister leads Cronauer to also begin teaching an ESL class for the local yes. South Vietnamese, where he teaches uh, he teaches them how to appropriately flip people the bird and how to appropriately tell people they look like shit. So uh, <laughs> if you're keeping count, listeners, one, he's trying to get with this woman. Two, he's a DJ. And three, 
He's an ESL teacher, so we got a lot going on here, okay? Yeah. Uh, the film progresses each of these stories, not really intersecting in a notable way uh, that makes all of the scenes necessary, but the film turns from Robin Williams' vehicle to serious picture with some heart about an hour in when a GI bar is bombed. It was yeah. at this, this point, this is kind of what you were alluding to, I believe, is around that mm-hmm. time it kind of takes a little shift. Yeah. And... Um, uh, it was it was at this point that I realized Robin Williams had become popular from uh, as Mork from Mork and Mindy, yeah. and his only act he had only acted in the film Popeye from 1980 as far as as films that retained any kind of lasting significance go. Okay, um, and and granted Popeye you know it didn't lose money but it was not well received despite the numbers. So Mork was his kind of big his big thing. So you know. And for all intents and purposes, this was essentially Robin Williams' first feature hit, and uh, it, it it wonderfully introduces, <clears throat> excuse me, it wonderfully introduces Williams as the spastic, lightning-witted observer who appropriately goes into wild fits while on air and is mostly a normal human when off. The spaz personality is uh, the man we see in Williams' stand-up and on talk shows, a typecast for Williams' brand of humor. And in that way, this film largely fits into the modern era of personality comedy, uh, that genre. And on that front, I appreciate it. But I also find the film a little exhausting. <laughs> and there are scenes uh, that are absolutely wonderful. But usually those scenes are sandwiched between other scenes that I feel are undeserving of their spot. And by that, I mean some of these character plot points uh, should have been focused on more um, and other scenes easily could have been left out. Now, Joe, I'm going to pass it off to you here. Do you think that Good Morning Vietnam is the classic of old as it is often heralded, or do you feel like this is a picture of its time, and that's where it will stay? Yeah. Uh, No, I do think it's a classic. Absolutely, I do. Um, You know, and and I I want to talk just a little bit about um, Robin Williams, um, too, at the time. Um, you know, you mentioned Mork and Mindy, and he had so he was by the time this movie came out, he was famous. Yeah. Um, he and he he'd done a couple of movies. I mean, Popeye was was pretty. I mean, Popeye was a big hit for him. That was Robert Altman film. Yep. But he did he did the World According to Garp. He did uh, Moscow on the Hudson, which were you know like they they were kind of high profile. But he was he was known still. He was still just a comedian mostly at yeah. this time. And also, just, kind of just I want to I want to justify something real quick though with what sure, I said, sure. or maybe contextualize. Yeah. Popeye, for example, cost twenty million dollars, and it only made mm-hmm. sixty. Okay. Yeah. So when I say first feature hit, I'm talking right. none of the other <laughs> movies prior to this made one hundred and twenty-four oh, no. million dollars yeah. and was only made for thirteen million dollars. But sure, continue, sure. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Continue, well, and, and, I, and I'm and I'm talking like leading into Good sure. Morning Vietnam. Um, he so he was so he was definitely the selling point of this movie. Um, and yeah, but yeah, no, I mean you're right that that that's what made you know um, Popeye and and uh, Mork and Mindy are the two that made him a um, a household name. Um, of course, Mork comes from Happy Days as well, who was you know yeah. Um, off of happy days so um, he was in that a couple of times but yeah yeah this was um this was the movie that made him that kind of shifted him from being a famous guy to an absolute mega star um he was like absolute a tip top guy at this point um after this movie um but yeah but i i do absolutely think it's a classic um 
the the scenes of him outside of the um, radio studio are a lot of times they're leisurely and it takes time to get where they're going. Um, there are there is maybe a scene or two where it's it's just about him making a joke, um, but it you know the it later on down the down the road it ties in and and you kind of get you know it makes a lot more sense why we focused on some of the characters we focused on um but the um as you know as the film starts um, you know he's he's coming from crete which was a, a no nothing you know or a, a nothing happening kind of you know army you know or, uh, he, he's an airman he's so he's in the air force and he's coming into a, a situation where the army kind of rules the the roost so he's coming from a a place where you know as they they mentioned he comes in off the plane and he's wearing like a cardigan sweater and like a, like some kind of white sweater and a t-shirt. And of course he's coming into a literal war zone where everyone in the army is wearing, you know, their, their, their um, BDUs. That, sorry. That's my, that's my, um, my army brat terminology, basically their uniforms, right? Their, their battle uniforms or their, you know, they're getting ready to come in, you know, they're, they're fighting a war. He's coming to, to take a job on the radio. And so he's, there's, there's this culture clash right at the beginning from these very serious um, guys who are, you know, looking at death and destruction every day or who are at least very aware of that. And he's coming in as someone who's coming on, you know, to, to take this job, his cush job to, to keep him off of the, the front lines, right? So, yeah, it's, um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting dichotomy right there, right off the bat to begin with. Well, everything um, and, you just said, too, <clears throat> about him being he's the private joker of Full Metal Jacket, which came out, yeah, you know, or, yeah. around the same time, yeah. um, you know, where it's like the guy that, you know, he has to be here. But if he can do something else to stay off of the front lines, he stays off. You know, right. he's, he's a goofball um, mm -hmm. and that kind of gets him somewhere. So they're not they're not right. one for one, of course. But, you know, it's also funny that in the 80s, <clears throat> sorry, we're like a decade removed at this point um, in 77, we're like 12 years um, yeah. uh, outside of, of the Vietnam war. And uh, in the eighties, mid eighties and on, I mean, you have platoon full metal jacket, this casualties of war, like all of these movies coming out and they're all like very blatantly anti-war films. <laughs> like, like these movies and their messages, many of them wouldn't go over now because right. of how like the military industrial complex is basically consumed cinema so you can't make movies like that really anymore um and so it's awesome because even the way that like and i don't want to jump the gun because i want you to finish whatever preface you're doing if i interrupted you here but sure, sure. there's even oh. a point where you know he has there are these twins and he has oh. to give them the news and they mark off stuff that they're that he's not allowed to say yeah. and uh -huh. so they're like it's almost like propaganda at this point. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like very censored news. And he's the guy that is, you know, causing a ruckus within this culture. Right. And he's trying to, uh, you know, inform the troops and he's trying to like do good. And who, who is, who's holding him back from doing good? The military, <laughs> you know, right. Absolutely. that yeah. shit does not happen anymore. Right. You know? Um, so it's, it's interesting that this, you know, it doesn't really feel like a war film per se, because we're really we're getting more of the jarhead experience than than the, yeah. you know, uh, fucking Black Hawk Down experience. Right. But yeah. like 
it still is. And it's interesting that, you know, now we're in like anti-war film territory with the Robin Williams vehicle. Please continue. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Some of that. Um, it's yeah. He, he comes in and he, he meets um, private garlic who is played by um, Forrest, Forrest Whitaker. Whitaker. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of Forrest Whitaker's earlier roles. He's in this movie, he's a young man and he's, he's put upon and he's teased a lot by, by some of his, um, by some of his superiors and his, his friends. And, and um, of course, Adrian goes right into him and just starts off like, so Robin, this is, this is Robin Williams on for, you know, most of this movie he's on, right. He's being Robin Williams. And um, this is something that later on, I think later on in his career, at least for me, if you can forgive me speaking ill of him, um, was it became annoying to me? It became grating to me after a while. If they're, you know, when, when you get into it's like some of those films like RV and you know some of his later films that are vehicles that are not, you know, where he's not making a serious film, um, it would become kind of grating. But at this point, this was like the beginning of it, and I don't think we had seen someone like him at this point. And just his ability, just rapid fire, just stuff, just boom, 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 um, yeah. was amazing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly a unique experience. I want to say one thing, and then I'm going to get back to what you just said. I, I just want everyone to know that Forrest Whitaker's next film is Bloodsport, by the way. Anyways, <laughs> I don't know why I want people to know that, but he goes from Good like Morning Vietnam to Bloodsport. It makes me very happy. Anyways, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, if you don't know, this is mostly for listeners. If you don't know what personality comedy is, uh, this is something that was largely defined by uh, the man that I actually learned under at Ball State University, uh, Wes Gehring. I have a book on my shelf, actually. It's about this. Um, but uh, personality comedy is is where you have a comedian who plays a consistent character, essentially, throughout multiple films. Woody Allen would be a modern era. Like, he always plays the neurotic hypochondriac when he's in those movies, yeah. right? Um, Charlie Chaplin plays the tramp, right? Personality comedy. Um, there, there, are, there are many different people that fall into that category. I'm sure even I'm sure you would even consider people like the Marx brothers or something where they're like the same. They have a personality and that is brought right. into different films. And Robin Williams up to this time, everywhere you saw this dude on uh, talk shows, especially that's what I remember him from as a kid. Cause I wasn't allowed to watch like his stand up and stuff, you know, but like, right. um, <laughs> But like on talk shows and stuff, dude wouldn't shut up. Like you'd see the peep, like the person facilitating the interview, you know, like almost getting frustrated because he wouldn't shut up. You know? right. He's just yeah. like a wild dude. And of course, you know, like my preferred films of his start, you know, in closer to like the the nineties and on. I'm trying to remember when. Um, the first big one with the not the first, but I mean like the the movie. I'm just gonna find it. Hold on, because <laughs> uh, it's not helping me trying to tell you and yeah, look this for is it. Outfire. No, uh, what Dead Poet Society. So it was '89, but like, and I I really love that movie. But like, you know, when when you start getting into stuff like The Fisher King, he's still ridiculous. But man, there are moments where he reigns that in, and he can be yeah. very serious, especially when he's freaking out. You know. Um, yeah. Hook, 
He's not that guy at all, dude. Oh, no, like, he's the straight man. Yeah, yeah. It, he's, like, super different. Of course, Aladdin, he's the most perfect fit, and he can really get his shtick out, but at the yeah. same time, I love how shtick sounds like dick, so it sounds like it just said he can get his dick out. <laughs> Anyways, so, um, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm even a huge fan of, like, his, like, I, I enjoy Goodwill Hunting. I like Bicentennial Man. Um, you know, one hour photo insomnia. He starts doing these death to smoochie, which is super weird. I'm like looking at his filmography right now, God, I love movie, but yeah. yeah, but like, you know, he starts, he starts really showing his range. Right. But you can yeah. see the beginnings of that. I don't think he quite gets there in this, Oh no! but you yeah. can really see, especially after up to the GI bar getting bombed. He is Robin Williams everywhere. Yes. And quite frankly, yeah. it was exhausting and a little annoying to me. I'm not going to lie. Because right, he won't yeah. shut up. <laughs> like, and yeah. even in serious moments where things happen, he's cracking a joke. And I just yeah. don't buy that that character would even be that all the time. Like, I get the radio personality. I get coming in and cracking jokes because you're supposed to be the funny guy. But after yeah. a while, dude, you're going to, like, fucking chill out. If someone's waking you up right. at 530, you're not going to be joking about it. You're going to get pissy with them. And I, I'm not yeah. saying I needed him to be that. I'm just bringing up points here. Like, sure, sure, yeah. it was a little much. But when the GI bombing happens, the 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 bar, you, you feel a distinct difference. I'm talking in cinematography, everything. Yeah. Like, it slows down. He's mm-hmm. very serious at that moment. He even comes back to the radio station is very serious. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and what I love is prior to this, um, and, and Altman's Popeye kind of being excluded here but everything you know about this guy is his this personality that he's created as this character and i can't think of a better vehicle for robin williams than this movie i mean what what kind of other than being a stand-up comedian what kind of story could you tell where you can actually let robin williams be robin williams yes better than a than a morning dj (laughs) Right. Yeah. Exactly Come on. Right. It's the it's a great choice. Now, <clears throat> to kind of transition, I want you to keep saying whatever you're going to say, but kind of I'm going to sure. lead you in, in a direction, though, though, I think that's great. There are different aspects. Like, I always thought this film was all about him. This is like fucking footloose, right? Homie comes yeah. into this culture. They don't <laughs> like dancing and he's going to keep breaking the rules. Right. And then this guy yeah. is you know, the radio DJ and he's going to be playing music they don't want and he's going to be telling news and he's going to be fighting with the system, you know, and it's, it's you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest where, you know, like Jack Nicholson's yeah, yeah. fighting the nurse, you know, nurse ratchet, ratchet. Like, yeah. it's, I thought it was going to be that. It's just not that. Like, right. those scenes are the most famous and that's why I've seen them time and time again. I had no idea there was like a semi love interest. It's I, I do air quotes because that really doesn't ever get off the ground, and nor should it. Yeah. But it's like, like the Twan thing is a whole arc, like that's a yeah. whole thing that they do. Um, yeah. and and his English his ESL class thing, yeah, is just it was super weird to me. Not, not necessarily bad, but just like a that's like a they don't yeah. really do much with it. Now, as I said in my intro, I talked about how a lot of these scenes don't really overlap to give them purpose um, other than to let Robin Williams be Robin Williams. And it's very clear watching this movie that it's his vehicle, right? Like this yeah. is, they're letting Absolutely. him kind of like explore multiple facets of his acting here. Um, but man, 
by the end, like you said, you know, had he never met Twan, that that plays a big role in the ending. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, I mean, like a pivotal thing. Um, Absolutely. The sister, it kind of a means to an end to me. I mean, that that you could rework that. Um, the ESL yeah. class, again, don't really need that. It's fun though. Like I'm not sitting here saying it's not, right. but like I really was invested vastly more though. In the DJ fighting the system and trying to make wrongs right. Do you get what I mean? And I'm curious, like, because I see these as, like, obviously they're all one film, but I see these as three different components, like separate components. Um, How do you feel about kind of how those are put together? And um, do you kind of agree that the DJ thing is kind of the the real heart of the film? Because I'm so sorry, I'm not letting you talk, but I keep thinking. The, 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 The key, though, is, like, the bombing of the bar can still stand. Now, of course, there's more context because of these other stories as you watch it. But even if that context wasn't there, a terrorist bombing of a GI bar can still exist in the DJ story. You know, the them getting stuck in traffic and him doing him learning that he really wants to continue being a DJ. If you know what I'm talking about, that whole scene. Great scene meets these GIs, feels for them. Wonderful. You don't need the other stories for that. And these are the moments that I think the film really detours from the hyperactive Robin Williams and allows him to be like a heartfelt character. And these are the scenes that really pump the blood through the film. Right. And so back to you, uh, like, how do you feel about these like three components? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. And um, I, I think it's important for this film to kind of understand the context of it. So first of all, this is based on a true story. So Adrian Cronauer is a real person, um, but the script is only loosely adapted to the real story. So, um, so for example, the, and I, and I read up on this a little bit to, and I wasn't even aware of this until I was reading it yesterday. Essentially the only um, the only like beats that were true to to the real you know historical event of this guy being real is that he came from Crete to Vietnam. Um, he did teach an English as a second language class, and um, he was only there for I think for a year, and then he came back on an honorable discharge. Um, none of the like most of the other well, and he occasionally clashed with his superiors. But it did, wasn't did he, as. Did he tell a guy uh, that he needs a blowjob more than any white guy in history? Did he ever say that? <laughs> I, I, I don't believe that happened. And he actually, and the real Adrian Cronauer, um, I guess, has done interviews, and he said, "If I did half the stuff that the the movie Adrian Cronauer did, I would still be in Leavenworth right now, and would not be there would not be a movie being made about my life." Yeah, I'll come back so, to that, but keep going. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's important to know. Um, so that contributes to what is, yeah, what is really kind of a, a, a sort of a disjointed screenplay at times. It, it's 100% it's a little, agree. Yeah. It makes, it makes some clumsy transitions here and there. It's not as, it's not as seamless and smooth as it could be. And yeah, it, it makes some, um, it, it amps up certain things for dramatic purposes that, that then kind of it kind of takes away some of the sort I don't want to say the realism of it, but the, I guess the natural feel of it. it it kind of interrupts that. 
So, so yeah, so he, he's clashing with the people that, you know, he's clashing with his immediate superiors. There's um, Lieutenant Hawk, um, that's H-A-U-K, Stephen Hawk, played by Bruno Kirby. But, and there's, it's funny in this, I, I would say the great Bruno Kirby even, um, there, so, you know, the great Forrest Whitaker, the great Bruno Kirby, um, who's his, so Lieutenant Hawk's superior is Sergeant Major Dickerson, played by the amazing J.T. Walsh. J.T. Walsh <laughs> is one of my absolute favorite character He's great. actors. Yeah. Uh, during that period, man, this dude is amazing. He is like, He's like one of the great dicks of all time, like, you know, like on screen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he he played. And no one calls Sergeant Dickerson Sergeant Dick. I was waiting right. for that the whole movie. Yeah, it's the yeah. it's the low hanging fruit, right? It's yeah. it's yeah. the easy the, joke. The general character, um, play, who is you know his boss, played by Noble Willingham, calls him Dick right at the beginning, but it's clear like these guys are. They're they're friends or they're like they know each other well at least. He calls because he calls him very casually calls him Dick, yeah. not not as an insult but you know because his name is um, um, what is his name in this film? It's um, I think it's like I don't know Michael Dickerson or something like yeah. that. You know, it's um, you might even say in here it might even just say Sergeant Major Dickerson. Um, it's, but it's not it's not Richard. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's, uh, it's not it's not Richard, uh, and I'm not going to find it here now that I'm. Oh wait, yes, yeah, it's, it's just Sergeant Major Dickerson in the credits. But his first name, he's there's a plaque or something that has his first name, and it's yeah. like it's like Michael or William or something. Yeah. So, uh, but he calls him Dick. You know, obviously it's for short because his name's Dickerson. But um, but he's he's a, a hard ass, and he um, and he's one of those guys that doesn't use contractions in his speech because it makes him feel like more of a hard ass, like more of a military guy. And um, he lo- like he hates Adrian Cronauer from the start, right? Like he doesn't want him here. The reason that he's actually here is because of the general, because of um, uh, the, the what's his name? General Taylor, yeah. that's Noble character. And if you don't know who Noble Willingham is from his name, he is one of those, another one of those character actors who, he he's got a very distinctive southern draw. I think he's Texan. He plays a lot of cowboys. He is from Texas. Um, he's most known for this movie. He was in City Slickers, also with Billy Crystal. He was an Ace Ventura pet detective with Jim Carrey. Um, and he's and he's like a type, you know. And he's just like he's kindly and he's got a sense of humor. And he hears this guy, he hears um, Adrian in Crete and is like, he, and he tells, you know, um, uh, Dickerson that he was, I damn near busted a gut just listening to him talk. So he, he, he's like, I have to get him here. He clearly doesn't have the same um, hangups or concerns about the, the content of the material that the rest of these guys do. Um, so so there, so he's ends up being like his best friend. It's like if not for him, they'd have shipped him out. They'd have, you know, they'd have had his head on a pike a long yeah. time ago, right? It's also a, a very telling of like <clears throat> it, this would have taken place in the early seventies. I'm assuming is when Cronauer. Well, actually, it was probably even earlier than that, huh? Sixty-eight. Yeah, I yeah. I was about to say it's probably even earlier based on the numbers they're kind of showing you as troops are going in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sixty-eight. Like all of these guys that are the superiors, maybe not uh, Bruno Kirby. I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> but like 
you know, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's 1965. It's even earlier. Than oh, that. wow. So it's the beginning. Okay, yeah. I, I actually yeah. didn't write that down, and I regret that now. But uh, J.T. Walsh, uh, Dickerson was his formative years were in the early 50s at that point, probably. You know what I mean? So you yeah. have the old guard versus the new. All the music that they are wanting him to play, including Bruno Kirby, who is essentially a a transplant from of his parents from the 50s because he's a younger guy yeah. but he's very old-fashioned still he clearly grew up in like a very sheltered home it seems right and because yeah. his humor's lame like it's very old-fashioned humor too like for that time even you know what i'm saying so maybe in like the 1930s he'd be hilarious but in the 60s not so much so like you have it's the it's the old squares versus the new hip kids right like you know he's uh uh Robin Williams' character is Cronauer is playing like really hip music. You know, he goes to very specific records like 45s, and yeah. Forrest Whitaker's Garlic is just like, yo, yo, you might want to use these. Like, these have been selected, and he just doesn't even pay attention. He's just going through all these great records, and right. he gets on there, and he's loud, and he's fast talking, and he's doing all of this stuff, and they just don't get it. Right. They just don't get it. Um, and it's also the old and new guard in terms of of the military. I mean, you know, yep. back in the day, you just do what you're told, and you know, you you get the information we give you, and you you fight for your country, and that's it. And you know, once we get to Vietnam, especially post Vietnam, I would even challenge maybe even during Vietnam that might have still been the case that early on, but. You know, after all of the protests and all of the fight and debate and the full color television news we're getting and all of these things with Vietnam and history afterwards, yeah. it's like, yeah, fuck those squares. Like, we're like, you know, like there's right. a lot of information we're not getting from this. So the movie really kind of tackles those things. I want to touch on two things, if you don't mind. Do you, do you need sure. to finish something, or can I touch on something you've said? No, I, no, I think yeah, I think we're moving. I think we're moving along. Yeah. Well, I, I want to. Yeah. I'm still sticking with what you said. I just didn't want to kind of steamroll you there. Oh, sure. I apologize. Uh, so, yeah, my uncle, one of my dad's brothers, was a military man. He's now retired from the military and doing his own thing. But uh, he was a. I don't remember. He was the highest you could be without a certain degree. Right, like you had to have a certain degree yeah. to go higher at that point. He might have been a drill sergeant or some. I don't exactly remember, but I remember my 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 uncle is a joker. Every time you're around him, I've only seen him serious one time <laughs> that I remember at least, and it was during a, a funeral, uh, and and it was like a very sad thing. But even at like my mother's funeral, he was there, and he was he was very respectful, but like yeah. you know he was still kind of joking around, trying to raise my spirits, and I appreciate that. But yeah. dude can't be serious, okay? <laughs> and right, right. so he's not like Robin Williams. He's not so lightning fast, right? But he's just constantly, it's this observation stuff, just kind of like that. And he said that he went, he, one thing he would do at like Thanksgiving, right? Is he'd walk around and he would just stick his finger in my mashed potatoes or something. Are you going to eat that? <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Yeah. So he he told me a story of when he was in the military and one of his superior officers, they sit at a different table, Right. So he walks yeah. over to them and he sticks his finger in one of their coffee and says, you're going to drink that. <laughs> what the fuck? I, I like, cannot I, imagine that. Yeah. I mean, of course he got reprimanded, but he didn't get like in trouble and they all know he's a joker. Right. And of course he had to have had a good rapport because he is 
respectful in that traditional military way. Like he wouldn't have just been uber disrespectful, right? But yeah. my point is that shit doesn't fly. Like they weren't happy about it, of course. And it was more of an on principle thing. They might have thought it was hilarious, but you, you yeah. can't do that, right? And right. um I don't know how that story played out. I don't even know if it's true. I believe him, but it's just like right. I don't I don't know how it went down. I wasn't there. But I tell you this to say, like, you know, I had an uncle in the military. I've heard some stories. I know how that goes. Uh, I think he was in the Navy, actually. Okay. So all that to say, having heard these stories, um, and that's the worst one. All the other ones are, are more stuff of, like, him getting other people in trouble or, you know, think, you know whatever. Yeah. Robin, like, Cronauer in this movie would have never gotten away with half the shit that he does. <laughs> In this movie, man, the the shit that he says, like the blowjob comment that I brought up earlier, um, which of course you know he's about to get in trouble in that scene, but you know you can people can watch it to see how that turns out. Great line, um, but just when he first gets there, you know he's like, just like pushing buttons, man. Like starts off subtly, but he's just like, oh, dude, when he when he reads news, he's not supposed to. Okay. Yes. And they and he locks the door and won't let them in. Yeah. Dude is in military jail, man. (laughs) Like, like I can't imagine that fired immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that would never happen. Now it's it it makes a point in the film, Mm -hmm. and these are kind of part of the comments. Whenever I brought up like, do you think it's a like the heralded classic, or do you feel like this is a picture of its time, and that's where it will stay? These are the kind of scenes that toe that line right where it's like if you made a movie like that now it'd be annoying you know what i'm saying because it's like we we everyone kind of knows this is not how it is and at the time in 87 they're trying like many of those movies they're trying to make a point they're it's like it's embellishment fantasy basically to tell the story and i I totally understand that and i I can totally i'm fine with that but sure uh, yeah, so that's just touching on something that you brought up w- with yeah. that. The other thing, too, is just to bring us back to kind of the disjointedness of, of the movie or whatever. You know, I actually think the movie's a mess. I actually have a note. I think the movie's actually kind of a mess. But that said, what a great vehicle to showcase the range Robin Williams has, though. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it, I bring that up to say, like, this movie's so weird. Because on one hand, I don't think it's actually very good. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like, but if your goal is to get this dude over, right. you did the thing. It's like a wrestling match where it's like, that's yeah. not a good match. But dude, you got the new guy over. Like, he looks like a champion. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Isn't that such a weird dynamic to have? It, it, yeah, it, it kind of is. Yeah. and And it's... That's that is what makes it memorable. Um, I think a lot of it is is the strength of of really I don't know the first half hour to forty five minutes, and and it ha- it's it's widely known I guess. Um, and, and and I even you know again in my research for this I I quickly found that out that I believe all of the scenes that depict him being a radio DJ were improvised. There was a lot of improvisation in those, and you can see the way he bounces from. From one bit to another, and Andy laughs at himself I, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he does a lot of. There's a lot of like references, and you know, it was funny. I mentioned I, I um, showed my son this, 
and I, as I'm going through, I'm realizing like, I, I caught most of the references. Like I, I at least know what most of those references are. He talks about like Ethel Merman and he talks about people who were um, kind of famous in, you know, in that day, but my son had no idea. My son doesn't, wouldn't know Ethel Merman from anybody. And I don't know if you even know Ethel Merman. Like yeah, I, I don't do. even know who Ethel Merman yeah. is. Other than, you know, she was a celebrity at the time, like she was an actress or a comedian or something. Um, and, and then, but it's, you're, you're, you're getting these little bits, even if you don't know, you're getting these little bits into their personality. And, and, and he's so big with it. Um, you know, his, his personality is just so big and he sells out so much to, you know, to, to get these things across that you just, you just buy it and you're like, whatever, I'm, I'm going along with it. Um, I do also want to say there are there are a few things again you know if you're talking about it being of its time there are a few things that you know he racially he says or he or you know in in terms of today's parlance you know you might have trouble with you know there's I don't know if I'd go so far as to call them homophobic but there's a couple you know he makes he makes some references to to there there's a, a thing about a protective dyke that he makes a comment uh, about and you know and it's like something about he's like we can't even say that word we can't even say the word dyke can't even say the word lesbian and he's like you got it's, we got to say women in comfortable shoes or something you know which which is like you know like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's maybe it's you know it's it's iffy for you know for a major motion picture he you know he does kind of caricatures at times of at one point he calls the girl that he is chasing after a dragon lady yeah, you know, which is you know, which today would certainly not fly. The opening sequence was cringy for me, like where he yeah. first gets there and they're driving and he sees one woman in a white dress and a white hat, and then he sees oh. another woman in an almost identical white dress and white hat, and he yeah. he makes this joke, and I, I I know this isn't exactly what it is, but it's kind of like why do all Asian people right, look right, the same? It's 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 yeah. that kind of terrible cliche that's right. kind of played upon. I have yeah, notes yeah. for this too. Keep going, but I, I'm on yeah, your bus yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah. He makes that joke about that, about, um, you know, and he said, because he, yeah, because they pass, they pass the one, and he, and as he said, he's coming from a place where there aren't a lot of attractive single. In his, in his words, I, I don't remember. His, I think he said something like, "All the women look like Zorba or something," <laughs> and like it's a real quick thing. Yeah, and. He, and he walks, you know, or they're driving by, and, and he's like, "Oh wait, we gotta stop! I gotta talk to her." And then he, and then they, you know, the, you know, uh, private garlic is like, "No, no, we gotta get to the, to the, you know, we gotta get get you to where." You know, and and he he's like, "Look how quick she is!" Yeah, and yeah, and it's it's certainly a a play on. I mean, and she's dressed identically as well, so it you know it's softened a little bit, but it, yeah, it very clearly is a Asian people look alike kind of joke. Yeah, uh, you might find yourself still laughing at it just because you know they're dre they're literally dressed the same. Yeah, so so you can may maybe you know that's that's your excuse, but um, and he does a couple like I don't know I don't want to say that there's a lot of like racial jokes. He he at one point he portrays a soldier who's very definitely black. Yeah, you know and and there you know there's part of that, but again it's not like he's not necessarily playing on a lot of stereotypes. You know. Yeah. Um, so there's just some stuff that at least would get a look, if not be like just you know crossed off. And then later on, again to his credit, there is a there is a um, a scene where when as he befriends this this one Vietnamese local, um, they go into the GI bar and these other GI. Now 
Now, Adrian very brazenly steals away the women that these GIs are are trying to, you know, they're trying to get with them, right? Like, and they're, you know, they're, you know, they're certainly trying, you know, they're, they're looking for a date, they're looking for a good time. And he literally like waves money at them. It's like, girls, hey girls, leave those guys and come over here. So those guys come over and they're very, you know, I, I would even say rightly angry about that. And but they're also they, much bigger than Robin Williams. He's a small guy, yeah. but he's up to like their pecs. Okay. These guys are yeah, huge. Yeah. 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 They're much bigger than him. So like he's, he's very definitely obviously picking a fight with them and, but they, but they go after the Vietnamese guy and they, and they say, if you, if you'll excuse the language, this is the, the word they, who brought the gook and he, you know, and of course that upsets him that upsets Adrian. And, and he's like, Hey, I did. And, and then he makes another joke and he makes a joke where he just goes through all of basically the entire list of racial of, slurs. Yeah. Yeah. Racial slurs to different ethnic groups. And, and it ends up starting a fight, you know, and they, um, but yeah, but he's, but he's saying it in terms of like, we need to be more accepting. Uh, and, and it's, so, you know, you're like, well, okay, there's that, that's their makeup. But then, you know, from time to time, there's a scene where he's wearing a hat, like, like a, a, like the one of the hats like the women are wearing right the, the the kind of the broad kind of with the point at the top so there yeah there's a lot of that in this movie yeah it's what's funny is as i was watching it the for as for as good as he is on the mic like mm-hmm. now i i never liked robin williams personally for his spazzy quick wittedness right. i can appreciate that he is good at it but it exhausted me even as a kid sure. <laughs> you know like maybe that's why i always gravitated toward like the one hour photos and things like that where he's just kind of like really good at his job you know not that he wasn't there but i mean fitting my you know preference i guess but man the only time i didn't really have a problem with these these weird things of the times uh was was the moments like in the bar where the guys use again, I'm more just like quoting to give context, but the like where they call them gooks and and the racial slurs. To me, that almost that's like realistic. Do you get yeah. like and again, you don't support it, and the film doesn't have to support it, but this is language used to yeah. eliminate that changes the historicity of the film. So Absolutely. that I'm okay, like by okay oh, yeah. with you know what I mean I, I have context yeah, yeah. but man yeah there's even like a character he plays a lot who clear oh. clearly clearly has like a mental retardation of some sort um, yes. or he plays like this like a slow talker for lack of a yeah, better word the military intelligence guy yeah 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 and and that's the joke right the military right. intelligence guy is the you know quote-unquote yeah. slow guy or whatever and it's yeah. like Man, some of these things are just cringy by today's standards. You know what I mean? And if you ever yeah. watch Ron Williams stand up, this is his gimmick. Like, yeah. these are the characters he plays all the time. The black guy, the gay guy, you know, the the slow guy, the whatever, right? Like, these these characters are things you've seen him do a million times if you've ever kept up with his pre-Good Morning Vietnam material. So, yeah. like, I get that. And, of course, he very much goes a different direction, not even as far as a decade later. Like, he calms down, milds out a bit. Uh, and even yeah. in comedy, like, dark comedy stuff like Death to Smoochie, he's not that guy anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, he really does kind of, I guess, I don't know, 
maybe wise up a bit or something. I don't really know how to talk about it. Yeah, maybe evolves. Yeah, his, his bit evolves a little. Yeah, yeah, it does. But man, yeah, that that shit's weird. Uh, yeah. I, I'm glad you brought it up because. I just don't know. Again, film history, looking at the times, I get where it's coming from. Um, And like some of the stuff that he can pull off is funny. It's not because of so much the content and it's more of like his execution of it, like how he's doing all of this so quickly and him laughing at himself because clearly this is improvised. You know, um, but yeah, that that's that's some that's some weird stuff. There is a scene I want to bring up, if you don't mind. Um, It's. There's a great. Ju- this is probably the most serious moment in the film for me. Okay, so you have so you, you have all those funny moments and some of the cringy comedy moments. Um, you have the GI bar being blown up. You have the moment where he's with the GIs in a traffic jam, like talking to each of them and getting to know them a bit and kind of rekindling his love for being a DJ, because they you know the military tends to suck all the fun out of it and he's finding that love again. And yeah. I think probably the most kind of powerful scene for me to that really brings in the horrors of the war and really kind of backs up and reinforces Robin Williams desire to like be honest with the people is the scene where uh, Louis Armstrong's what a wonderful world starts playing juxtaposed with like real war violence. I mean, taking Vietnamese people into an alley and shooting them on the spot kind of violence. Um, I thought that was really great did, did was that a scene that kind of connected with you because that at that that was a scene that and like kind of stabbed me in the heart oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah and there, there's there's really three of them for me that i just i just watched and i just thought man what a damn good scene that was um the one was after that bombing in the the bar bombing and actually the bar bombing itself leading into the following scene um, so the so the bar bombing happens. Um, he's he's actually in the bar, and his and his friend his his um, uh, uh, Tuan his his buddy um, sees him. He's right by the by the outside. So he's standing outside. He's like, "What are you doing here?" And he's clearly kind of panicked. You know, he's he's a little bit upset. He's like, "What are you doing here?" And he's like, oh, "I'm just having a drink." You know, whatever. I'm just hanging out. He's like, "No, you." He's like, "No, no." And and he's trying. He's very clearly trying to get him out of the bar, right? He says, "Hey, my hey, my sister wants to meet you," and at this point, they've already had, he's already had a date with the sister, and and there's a kind of a funny thing where she brings her entire family, including babies, on this date because they're <laughs> chaperones, right? And and that's kind of a, a cute moment, but um, but she also expresses like, "There's nothing's going to happen between us. Like I, I I'm I'm hip to who you are." you know, who, who the, the U.S. military guys are who are coming in here and they just want to get some action, right? They, you know, it's not going to work. And so he's like, he's like, no, no, she, she doesn't want anything to do with me. And he's going to, he's like, I'm just going to stay here and chill at the bar. And he's like, no, no, you got to come right now, right now, right now. And um, they walk out of the bar and, and, it, and there's, there's a really subtle moment where he's holding the door open. Robin Williams, or Adrian is holding the door open for people who are entering the bar. And then they get like five steps down and then the bar just explodes. This is a great eighties explosion, by the way. Yeah. You don't get yeah. these anymore. Right. It's a huge explosion. It's great. In a bar full of people, but, but um, two people die. And then there's, um, 
there's, I don't know, they said three or four people were injured. I can't remember the exact number. And then, um, but you also see the owner of the bar who had been a character um, that had gotten, you know, who they they interacted with a little bit. Um, you see him running around upset in his new green suit. But like, if you see this explosion, like everyone inside would be dead. Yeah. Like, like functionally, like everyone's dead inside, but somehow it's like only two people and, yeah, so yeah, you're right about the size of the explosion, right? Dude, it's great though. I mean, despite the suspension of disbelief needed to believe that anyone's alive, uh, including right. Robin Williams. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, yeah. dude, it's about 10 that's feet from a major building exploding. Yeah, that's some serious like uh-huh. diehard shit. I mean, it's yeah. it's a big explosion. I loved it. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's really great. I, yeah. I, I want to detour real quick, just, just for the sake of time, I'm going to jump around and I, I want you to do the same and we'll, we'll kind of hit a few points here. Um, there's a great line and I want to talk about, I want to just generally talk about uh, uh, Bruno Kirby's performance here because I think he's great. And yeah. my, just to transition into it, I love, there's a moment where Forrest Whitaker quotes a letter that was sent in by someone who hates Kirby like most of the soldiers <laughs> do. Yes. And the the quote is Lieutenant Hawk sucks the sweat off a dead man's balls. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, "I don't know what that means." Yeah. Sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's great. And of course, he has to say like that's a quote. <laughs> like right, you know, yeah. he's he's. Uh, I mean, some of these lines are ridiculous. And and yeah. and I actually have another note where I say like the film doesn't know when to be serious. Like there are some moments, including the end. And I'll just say, oh, including yeah. the end with with. Twan and Cronauer, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. There's a moment that feels like it should be much more serious. And there even are moments of seriousness and tears. And then he's right. joking again. That yeah. stuff gets on my fucking nerves. However, right. like yeah. these jokes, man, out of context, just as jokes, joke lines yeah. crack me uh-huh. up because this sounds like a, a, a mid nineties, Adam Sandler line. You know what I mean? Like just like a re- they're like so childish. Uh-huh. And they're great. Um, yeah. Are there any are there any specific lines throughout the movie of dialogue, whether it be improvised from from Cronauer or just jokes like this that really stand out to you? Yeah, yeah, and you know I'm gonna and I'm gonna tie back to your Bruno Kirby, and and we'll get I'll get to my other couple scenes in a minute. I definitely want to talk about him too. Yeah. So yeah, all of this. Yeah, but um, there there's a scene where um, um, uh, Hawk, uh, Bruno Kirby's character. Now they now you have to understand everyone like he's a joke to all the other guys, so nobody takes him. None of the other guys in the station take him seriously. He's essentially like, you know, if if you if you make a um, if you make, if I can make a comparison to another movie, if we're watching um, Howard Stern's Private Parts, he's pig vomit essentially, right? He's the manager, right? He's not <laughs> yeah. like the station. Like you could say you could say that that um, Dickerson is like the uh, Dickerson is like the owner, maybe, or you know, but you know, like like he's the he's the direct manager. He's the one who's supposed to be telling Cronauer what is and isn't acceptable, and he wants him to play Perry Como and like Lawrence Welk and this really like lame music, right? And and of course, you know, we've mentioned all this stuff, but um, there's this immediate. I think this is after his first broadcast. He walks in, and you find out this other quirk of his, which is that he loves to use acronyms. And there's yeah. this whole thing, and and literally everyone is laughing at him as he's talking, because he continually uses acronyms. And he's like, the former VP is this is like Richard Nixon. He's talking about Richard Nixon is going to visit. He's like, the former VP is going to be here, 
and we need to keep it on the QT. And there's like, like he just like rolls. And every time he says an acronym, they all start like cracking up at him. And then Robin Williams, you know, of course, comes back and he's like, well, since the VIP, and he goes through this whole list, since the VIP is, or VP is such a VIP, shouldn't we keep this on the QT? Because, and then he like, he yeah, goes he through rings off a like, ton of acronyms. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and he just fires them off and he's like, I know he ends it because he's like, because then, because then he could go, because if we, if the VC find out about it, he could go MIA, then we'd all be off doing KP. And everyone is trying not to laugh. Like, you know, the, the good kind of the good thing about this is, you know, the making of that is that they don't, they didn't have to worry about like breaking during the scenes because they just laughed openly because of, you know, of who the, the guy was that he's talking to. What's great real quick about that scene with Kirby Uh though is yeah. a lot of those scenes you can't tell if he knows that Cranauer is fucking with him. Right. Yeah, that's what I was that's exactly what I was about to say was that yeah, he's not that's the whole thing is he's so square is that he's not entirely even sure whether he's speaking like he says these things that are clearly like salty to him and and he's you know he's completely screwing with him and he's just like okay, thanks. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. You know, and yes, he completely doesn't get it because he thinks because he's being very facetiously respectful to him at times. Yeah. He's like, oh, yes, sir. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, and it's like now he's totally screwing with you, man. Yeah. The, the best, I, dude, one of my favorite moments with Kirby, we'll, we'll get to lines that you appreciated because I almost bypassed uh, Kirby here. We, we need to talk about this. So, uh, Kirby, when he gets his chance to take over the show, because there is a point <laughs> where Cronauer uh, does get suspended. Okay. Yeah. Um and and this is when um uh Lieutenant Hawk gets to take over the spot and the general suspends temporarily um Cranauer from the show and all of the GIs are writing in saying bring Cranauer back. This guy, you know, could suck the sweat off dead man's balls or whatever. You know, like they're saying really terrible things that are hilarious. And and all of the other people, Forrest Whitaker, all, all of the other people in the radio station are begging him. They're like, you're terrible. They're finally just outwardly saying it. Like, you right. will regret this if you do it. And <laughs> yeah. and uh, Hawk is just like, no, I'm doing it. I'm funny. I'll prove it to you. And right. man, he does his best square version of Robin Williams. I'll be honest. I thought his bit on the radio was better for me in terms of funnier like i laughed way more at him than i ever did robin williams his right. squareness comes through so wonderfully and he uh, does this this voice that he calls frenchy and it's just this yeah. like very mediocre like back if you watch 1930s and 40s movies people who are german or like french they always have these like really bad it's like gambit from the x-men animated series like it's just really terrible uh-huh. accents that are just like cliche stereotypes you know and uh man how because he sits back afterwards so (laughs) smugly like he just nailed it after he just played some polka all right Right. and all the guys are just looking at him he's like i mean there's a good beat like 10 seconds and he goes i'll accept your apologies anytime or whatever like he just knocked it out of the park is that not one of the best scenes in the movie yeah, absolutely yeah absolutely yeah and he's yeah he's so terrible um yeah and he does the yeah he the frenchy character is so bad and he has he has like a bicycle horn that he's <laughs> like a like he's a clown that he just periodically just peppers in for no reason yeah yeah and he's just like 
the, yeah, this is your cue to laugh because this is the, that's what he's, he's, you know, it's essentially like, here's your cue to laugh. Here's, you know, hey guys, here's how funny I am. And yeah, and like number one, like like you're a three-year-old and number two, like he's a clown. Yeah, and that, yeah, that bit where he just, yeah, he just looks at me, he's like, I, I don't know, yeah, he's a, I, I, I think an apology is in order, guys. Yeah. And they're just like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it immediately cuts to the to the call center line where 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 some of the other guys are now taking calls and the, yeah, and they're all like, oh, yeah, they're like, okay, I get it. I get, yeah, you don't think he's funny. Okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and then, they, yeah, then they go through the, the, um, the, the, those other comments, right. That, that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. The, the best thing about Kirby though, is when he sits back smugly, like I just nailed it, motherfuckers, his yeah. face, man, you have his, his eyes. This uh-huh. isn't just a bland performance. I mean, this really is a testament to how good he is. Yeah. Where he can really play this with such conviction, there's something about his eyes. Like there is f- like a rage behind these eyes. Like where he's just kind of like, "I told you, I told you," and I'm sitting here waiting. Yeah. He, there's something with his eyes, man. Just watch this scene, oh. folks. If you're listening, watch this scene and tell me Kirby is not like that's not how a real person would look if they think they just knocked it out of the park. It's so great. And then there's also the scene where Kirby's character, uh, Hawk, is talking to the general. And he says, uh, like, he's like, what about the silent majority or whatever of people? Like, all the people complaining about me, they're just the loud voices. But what about the silent, you know, majority? I forget his phrasing um, that, that love me out there. It's like he just, you cannot convince this guy that he's terrible. Like he right. sincerely believes because Reader's Digest is considering <laughs> publishing two of his jokes. Um, right. You know they haven't yet, but they're they're considering it. That he thinks he is like bona fide funny. Man, that guy is really great. We're getting high on time here, so I'm going to keep moving along uh, yeah, yeah. before we uh, before we run out though. But I had to get Kirby in. He's great. Now I, I want to turn this real quick, and we can. I'll, I'll give you a moment to touch on anything else you want after this. This might be the last thing I bring up. Um, you know, this, this really feels like a Levinson flick, you know, we're here because it's his birthday. Uh, Barry Levinson's a filmmaker, like I said, has brought us a lot of hits. Uh, I still haven't seen a lot of them. It's something I want to revisit because I can't think of a movie I've seen of his that I didn't like. And I guarantee there are plenty that I wouldn't like. Okay. (laughs) But I haven't seen them yet. Right. I've seen a lot of these hits and there are other movies like Liberty Heights, Good Good Morning Vietnam was one. Um, I can't even remember. We talked about Wag the Dog during our political conversation, but I can't even remember if I've seen it from beginning to end. Either way, I need to revisit it if I have, because I don't, kind of like you, where you're like, I don't even remember how Good Morning Vietnam ends. That's me with Wag the Dog. It's like, I can't remember if I saw this. There there are several movies of his that I feel like, he did Wag the Dog, right? I'm not just pulling that yes, out of my... Did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't tell from your face if I was getting that wrong entirely or not. <laughs> no, but I'm actually going through his filmography, but yeah, he... Yeah, he did do Wag the Dog. Yeah, he's, I mean, I, I really love everything I've seen by uh, Barry Levinson. And and part of the, the reason is because his films feel so timeless. There's something about the way that they're shot. It's kind of like watching, th- these are two very different movies. I'm just making a kind of uh, peripheral point here. But think of something like Schindler's List. Like, the way that that movie is shot. Yeah. Is like a t- it just the feel of it, everything. It's not the sleek, brand new look that we get with most brand new, like bigger budget movies today, right? That digital, very sleek look. I have nothing against that. 
But sure. like, man, there's something like that has this kind of aged quality even at the time. Like it's just like it's just protected in amber, right? <laughs> like it's yes. you know, like yes. it is just one of those movies. And and uh, I, I don't know why I can't think of the guy that did Shawshank Redemption right now. Oh, Frank Darabont. I knew it was Frank, but I couldn't think of Darabont. Okay. But anyways, like Frank Darabont's movies are very similar to this, where it's like when I watch a Darabont movie, I feel the same way. There's like this kind of aged, in a positive way, quality to yeah. them that is like really kind of spot on. And yeah. I, I really love Levinson's uh, style. And it's even here, this is pretty early. Of course, he did Diner. And then this was kind of like, I mean, he did a lot of movies. We could go through his whole filmography. But, like, this was kind of the next banger. Diner was more of, like, a, a small feature, but it's first uh, there. And then you have this one, though, that really kind of puts him on the map. And, of course, Rain Man just accelerates that uh, to yeah. new heights there. And, man, oh, and The Natural, duh. I didn't even yeah. uh, mention that. Uh, but the Natural man, has the same, the same feel, right, for yeah. the, of its time. Yeah. The, 100%, yeah. man. Uh, so Levinson in the 80s, as far as I'm concerned, is just – spot i mean these movies will live on forever even if i don't think like this is like that great i mean it's great as a robin williams vehicle and uh you know it might be my my least favorite of the group but still it has its place it looks great there's there are moments where uh where they're in the sound booth with them and it's all like handheld and they're just like moving like really quick it's almost jarring but not in a bad way it's kind of frantic much like like Cronauer is frantic and like everything's yeah. going on and uh, man I don't know how did you feel about the directing here the vision I think Levinson really nailed it for what it's doing especially that juxtaposition with the Louis Armstrong song I mean when when he hits that that's that is as well done as anything you know what I mean like I mean it's really great what did you think of this execution yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And and the one thing um, one thing about this movie is, you know, taking place in Vietnam, they mention it, that it's hot all the time. And you can feel that in the cinematography, even if they're not necessarily, even if it's a more subtle thing, they're not necessarily like pushing in it. They're not constantly going, oh my God, it's hot as hell in here. But there, there's just a couple of times where they're like, it's hot, it's hot, it's hot. And and you see that just, and it's it's apparent in the cinematography um, not just in the way that, you know, like there's kind of a sheen on everybody's faces. Um, there's not a lot of air conditioning and, you know, there, but there's a lot of shots with like just fans blowing in the background where you just see it. And like I said, just like people just kind of generally have kind of shiny faces. And, but the, the one thing that, that, you know, even just listening to you talk, I hadn't even really thought about this is I grew up on army bases so um you know in the in the 80s in the mid 80s so a lot of the the way that military installations look especially you know they have kind of a temporary feel to them a lot of times in so they're they're using a lot of old buildings um and the in the repurposing buildings that not weren't necessarily created for this purpose you know the purpose that they're using it so it kind of has there's kind of this like chintziness and old style look to a lot of buildings. Like you go in and they're very sparse or they're painted a specific neutral color um, and often like not a very attractive color. And there's a lot of that in this movie too, where there's a lot of like on the base, you know, in the studio, the studio has a very specific kind of old look to it. Um, and then when they're out in the town, when they're on the base, 
you know, you, it, they're just, there's kind of just a, a, this it kind of has that same feel that of not only like the 1960s, but of, you know, a 1960s military where it's just, there's a lot of things that are there that are meant to be temporary. And so they're, you know, they're not building, like their studio is not glamorous looking and nice. It's, it, it's kind of sparse looking and, and it's brown and, you know, it, it looks like an army office because that's what everything would look like in, you know, in the army during that time. So I love that authenticity. I love the music choice. There was a time when I just like, I just put the use of music is phenomenal in this movie, the songs they picked and the, and what Levinson does around it, as you said, the, uh, what a wonderful world sequence. There's another one. I don't remember if I wrote down what the song was. Um, I, I think it was even maybe like a montage of songs, nowhere to run, um, nowhere to run to. I'm not, I'm sure that song was even titled, but um, this is when he first plays one of his first times he comes in and plays music and it, and it cuts to soldiers just like they're but they're all mostly just like hanging around wherever they're at right Some of them are like sitting on trucks or they're they're out in the you know i don't know if they're necessarily in combat in a combat zone but they're they're out somewhere in the in the jungle or in a field and they're all just like rocking out to these songs and it's just it's a really it's really well made and it's happy right like at that point it's happy and upbeat but then the the juxtaposition as you said later on where you know what a wonderful world is just like you know this just this you know this beautiful song right and it's it is interspersed with these just horrible you know like you said explosions and people dying and being murdered horribly and it's um yeah it's those those choices are just really well done and they're i mean they're not overly complicated but they're it's it hits hard and it's it's a good it's a good use of of the of directing and of editing so um, yeah, terrific. Yeah, terrific stuff. Yeah, there. really, really fantastic. I got to give Levinson some props there. And good call on a lot of those music choices, because, of course, I picked out a couple of them. But you're right, that first one, the Nowhere to Run thing, again, something yeah. I didn't write down, but it clearly is uh, clearly is a thing. It's it's really great. Um, I don't I don't even know if I have anything else that's worth even mentioning at this point. I mean, I have several other notes, but uh, nothing that I haven't kind of covered. I found the first 15 minutes exhausting, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. even though I, it's not that I didn't like it per se, but it's more of just it's just exhaust. I mean, Robin Williams yeah, yeah. is on the whole time. Forrest Whitaker's silly early on, like yeah. very silly. Like later on, it kind of I feel like it's a bit more natural and it feels more like garlic, yeah. the character. But early on, he always does that high laugh and he tries to start the already started car, which what's yeah. funny is it's funny later to me. Like at the yeah. end, when he does it twice in a row and Cronauer's yeah. just like, yeah, it's real hard, like giving him shit, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. man, that's super funny. And it needs uh, that first one at the beginning to be a callback. You know, like yes. I totally, totally get that. But man, at first, Force Whitaker's even a little cringy to me. Like the whole thing, it feels weird. That first 15 minutes was rough, but it, it does earn itself. Like it does build into something. So I don't yeah. want that to be like an exclusively negative uh, criticism or anything. But uh, yeah, uh, dude. Yeah, I, again, didn't love this movie, but there are parts definitely that are admirable. And as a director, I think Levinson, with what he has to work with, the performers, yeah. the script, which is not great, I will argue. The best yeah. parts of the script are Kirby and uh, yeah. and improvisations. Because <laughs> right. you can yeah. always tell when Robin Williams is written in that movie. 
It's yeah, so yeah. different than the not written stuff. You know what I mean? But anyways, final thoughts, Joe. Thoughts yeah, yeah, on uh, Good Morning Vietnam? Yeah, yeah. So let me let me go into my two my two scenes. My well, my, the three scenes that I really loved. One was it's the it's uh, what a wonderful world scene. Um, the second one was was the explosion of the bar, and then oh, yeah. into that moment where he goes back into the into the studio because he's got to go on, and he's covered in blood, and he's sick of taking his news into the censors, who were by the way played by the twins who have been in things like Terminator Two. Um, and Gremlins too. Um, you'll you'll if you if you're a fan of either of those movies, you'll recognize these guys right away. They did look familiar to me, but I didn't put that together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah they're the 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 guy when when the T1000 in Terminator Two goes and he kills the security guard right by he looks just like him when when he comes up off the floor and he he turns into the guard with a, who's getting the coffee right and he he stabs him through the eye with his finger right. That's that's who they are. Um, but anyway, so he shows up um, at uh, back of the studio, and he's got blood all over him from the explosion, from moving bodies and everything. And he's about to take um, he he tears the news off of the typewriter, and he's going to go in and read that there was an explosion at the at the GI bar that he was at, and and they won't let him say it. They won't let him. They're like, you you do not report on this. And um, and even Dickerson, uh, Sergeant Major Dickerson, is like do no this is not it's not your call to make and you're not doing it so he goes in and, and tells them and and he breaks right so he goes in and does the good morning vietnam and you know the the big loud boisterous and you and he's and he's trying he does his little like news flash sound that he does did it did it did it and he like can't get through it like he breaks a little bit and then he's like to hell with this and he just and he and he just says what some well something that didn't happen today was at Jimmy Waugh's bar and and downtown Saigon there wasn't an explosion from a terrorist bombing and two people were not killed you know and he goes to, in the meantime like they're trying to break the door down this is the moment where he gets suspended so that was a kind of a great you know that's the that's the change of pace scene right like that's you know that's the the that change of pace you mentioned continuing um then the third scene that i really loved was as he's talking to those gi's that we mentioned um, where you know he's refused to come back after the general reinstates him, and he's he's having this kind of little bit of a pity party, and um, Garlic takes him to um, uh, see these GIs, and uh, he's like, "Hey, you not guys know who I have here?" And as soon as he says their name, they all are like, "What?" And they all start like, "Hey, come on, say good morning Vietnam for us," and, and they go through the whole bit, right? But about halfway through that, in my head, I was like, look at these guys who like love him. And, and he starts asking them all questions about where they're going. And you realize a lot of these guys aren't coming back. Yeah. You know, like, and he like, realizes is, that too. Yeah. And of course, yeah, of course he realizes that too. And that, that's what, what hits really hard. And I was just like, what a fucking great scene that was <laughs> right there. Just what a phenomenal little scene that does some there's a whole lot without there there's not a lot of like you know what you mean to these soldiers you know it's just like it, it was a show don't tell moment you know instead of yeah. having the, the fiery speech of you know how much you mean this is what you do instead of that they just show it by taking him to these people who he's been he's been serving this whole time that he kind of just forgot about in this moment and he's like damn these guys are gonna like die soon and 
you know, it, it's this big thing. And it, it means a lot in, you know, in, in kind of a, a small, quiet scene. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, you know, all three of the scenes that you brought up, which I second as really great moments, uh, especially if you tie the GI bar with the following scene of him going to the radio station. If you combine yeah. those, boom, like what a great scene. All three of those scenes that you mentioned, uh, like none of them are reliant on any of those other points other than him being a, a disc jockey. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and And so I guess my conclusion to all of this before we wrap up here is, uh, it just really bums me out that the whole Twan sequence yeah. gets as much attention as it does, which ties yeah. into the ESL stuff, which ties yeah. into the sister. Like, all of yeah. those things are so second. Now, I love when they're playing baseball later in the movie with, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, whatever those fruits are and, like, this piece of wood. That's fantastic. Yeah. Like, I love that. There are great sequences that if you cut those things out, you'd likely have to lose them. But it yeah. seems like to me, I would just do it because all these moments you're mentioning, man, make it so much more effective for him yeah. being the DJ. Uh-huh. You know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. Yeah. and so uh, I just feel like you could easily rework this, and it's not my job to rework anything. I'm not I'm not trying to like fantasy book here, but it's uh-huh. I don't know. It, just, it that's the thing that really bummed me out about the movie is I felt like uh-huh. there was this other stuff that you forgot, right? After what? Because all you remember are the things we're talking about. And yes. these are easy to overlook because they they don't mean as much. And I feel like this film could really hit mm. even more home, showcasing Robin Williams as it did, while also hitting as hard as some of these other Levinson movies we've talked about. Yes. And that's really my only criticism because it was a good time. And, and by the yeah. end, there were some really great moments. Uh, yeah. You mentioned them and... Uh, I think it's a great yeah. showcase for both Levinson and uh, Robin Williams. So uh, on that note, I think I think we're good to go. Uh, if you want to check out uh, Good Morning Vietnam, where'd you watch it, Joe? I, I actually rented it, so I actually paid for it. Um, you can I know you can see it on if you have um, um, Cinemax, Amazon Prime, and do the Cinemax subscription to that, or I mean whatever. If you have just have Cinemax, you can do it. Um, you can see it there, but. I wasn't able to find it anywhere else. So I, I paid four bucks and yeah, four bucks well spent. I'm sure. And, and uh, you can, if you have Hulu or HBO, you can get the Cinemax uh, subscription. You can probably get a seven day free trial or something. If you want to check this out, yeah. you can also uh, rent it uh, as Joe did. Did you rent it on Amazon? I, I, yeah, I rented it through Amazon. Okay. So yeah. you can get it on Amazon. You can get it through iTunes, YouTube. I mean, there's tons of places you can get it. If you want to check out uh, good morning, Vietnam, you can also, you know, search out Diner, search out Rain Man, uh, search out uh, The Natural, search out You Don't Know. I can't stress how much I loved You Don't Know Jack. That was on my top 10 of that year. A, wow, an really? HBO movie with Al Pacino, who was far beyond his prime at this point, and a Barry Levinson movie, and I loved it. Now, I would need to revisit that movie to fully kind of have an opinion. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, great time. So if you want to check that out and you'd agree or disagree, please feel free to hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, whatever you want to do. You can also find Joe on Twitter at Joe Shearer nine, and you can find me on Twitter, Austin Glidden. Um, and, uh, Hey, hit us up on letterboxd. If you want to see our ratings for the film or any other films that we talked about, 
You can find us by our names. Joe Shearer and Austin Glidden will pop up. Definitely make sure you have a letterboxed account and follow along with our diaries as we watch tons of yeah. stuff and rate them and write little blurbs about them. Uh, but Joe, any any last comments you want to make before we get out of here? <laughs> no. Yeah, you know, I just I just want to say that you are in the most dire need of a blowjob that any white man I know. <laughs> You've been holding on to that the whole time, haven't you? you th- that was your whole plan. <laughs> I'm to hold on to it. <laughs> All right, man. See ya. See ya. All right, everyone, that was our episode for today. We covered Godzilla versus Kong, or at least I did early on and kind of went on a, a, a long ranty something or another. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty fun. And then Joe and I got to talk about uh, Good Morning Vietnam in celebration of Barry Levinson's birthday, which is today. So, hey, Mr. Levinson, happy birthday. Uh, yeah, go check out Good Good Morning Vietnam. You can, you know, uh, rent it or whatever. Just find the thing. I mean, it, it's been around since 1987. You can find it. Um, and it's cool to see Robin Williams, you know, early on in his, you know, big cinema, becoming like a big star in movies. You know, again, he did Popeye in 1980, but this was really, I mean, this blew him up, you know. So it's really cool to see this kind of almost personality comedy type movie, but it really does hit hard in a few scenes. Again, I wasn't a huge fan. I think I gave it a three out of five or something, but it it is good, though. I mean, that's still positive, you know, uh, for the most part. I enjoy watching it. I'd watch it again. So um, anyways, uh, all that said, hopefully you enjoyed the episode. And if you agree or disagree with any of our thoughts, please hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at MediumCoolPod. You can also email us at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. Or you can find me, Austin Glidden, at Austin Glidden on Twitter. So, you know, hit me up. Let me know what you think. You know, I don't know. Just talk to me. It's fun. Uh, With that said, though, hey, thank you so much for listening. We love you. And, hey, good night. Good luck. Take it easy.